there's no step-by-step -step formula on how to innovate. Um, there, there's too much nuance to it and too many variables. You need to have an overall guiding path, but you also need to take a few little deviations from that if necessary and be happy to do so. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with somebody who is making sense of our increasingly connected world. Today, we're pleased to welcome Joe Scarborough, whose passions lie in building businesses, innovation, technology, and mental health. After starting out as an accountant, he forged a place in the London technology startup community a few years ago, both starting a few companies and working at the intersection of small and larger companies, which is the main topic of our discussion today. I first got to know Joe as one of the driving forces behind Silicon Drinkabout, a startup community that began in London, then grew to over 20 different countries with hundreds of events that were attended by over 100,000 people. A few years later, he launched Touchpaper, a not-for-profit organization on a mission to make it much easier for startups and corporates to work together through their excellent toolkit and services. He's currently the chief financial officer of an artificial intelligence company called AltViz, as well as advising many companies and startups and working with Tech City UK, Code Club and the Raspberry Pi Foundation. We had a really interesting conversation a few months ago in a great little recording studio in Hoxton in London called Coda to Coda, where we talked about corporate startup collaboration. So I started out by asking how the Silicon Drink About startup community began that he helped to build back in 2011. Enjoy. So that was started back in uh, 2011 by Michael Acton Smith at Mind Candy. We were attending his events and he was kind of coming to ours and he said, you know, you're always here at Silicon Drink About, would you mind kind of taking it on? So we took it on and it grew and grew and grew. And now it's in, I don't know, like 35, 40 different cities. Just run by volunteers. There's no kind of commercial aspect to it. But it's been a really, really good fuse to ignite um, communities around startups in, in all number of cities. And the reason we started expanding it was because people visited London, came to the event and then wanted that community for their own city. So, so you've obviously mentioned Michael, who's now in... Silicon Valley, I believe. He is, yeah. He's, he's doing very well with, um, with Calm.com. So who are the other companies, large or small, that have come through the Silicon Drink about? It's, it's hard to tell. I mean, one of the things that was our biggest success in terms of the people that attended the event, but our biggest failure in terms of commercialising was that we never really took people's data. We didn't want people to feel like there was an exchange for coming to the event. Um, you know, their value was them being there and sharing their experiences with the rest of the community. Had we collected the data, it would never have got to where it got to and, and would never have been so supportive. But had we collected the data, I'd have more information for you yeah. to answer that question. So well, you were community builders, right? I think I've been involved with quite a few different communities and the best ones are often those where that kind of generosity of spirit kind of is at the core it, mm. but it makes for a difficult business model to scale that well. yeah it's a, it's a very very fine line between making those two things work harmoniously um, which two things running a community first event or community but then also having it being commercially supportive of, of whatever you're doing as well do you think that's um, impossible are they opposites i wouldn't say they are opposites i'd say 
if you are satisfied with community being the primary driver and you and you can run it in that way without thinking oh man not many people came to our event and we spent all that money there will be other benefits but then they're just not quantifiable as pounds and pence if you start off with this is an event to show off our business and we want a return from it then you will get less people and less of a community around it it's interesting, isn't it? Because the biggest companies now in the world, the kind of Facebook, Google, uh, they are communities, they are networks, you know, at their heart. So mm. at the very kind of massive global scale, they make a ton of money because of the arguably the monopolistic kind of role that they play. But at the kind of small, more local scale, it's very hard for that to have, a, I guess, a successful business model around yeah. that. Is that. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think, I think you need quite a large critical mass before you can effectively monetize the community mm. and you need to do it in a way that people don't object so strongly that they just move on from the product and that means that the product has to be of a certain amount of value that they just don't want to move from it you know if you if you say to people um you can't use google search no one is going to not use google search it's just it's it's too useful it's become too invaluable to them for people to kind of think about that i use google search all the time it's amazing i'm happy slash not unhappy for them to use my data in a way that supports me still using their service. This this gets to the core of what I'm interested in talking to you about specifically, which is how large and small organizations, corporate and startup companies potentially need each other and work together. What do you think the different incentives are for large and small companies to, to collaborate? Normally on the on the startup side, it's access to market. So if you have a product which is complementary to a large corporate's or is very relevant for their customer base, then you want access to that customer base in order to further your your kind of business. And obviously profile as well, if you can say we're working with Google, the, in the next biggest company um, that's in your in your industry, then that's kind of a little bit of a, a tick box that they can use to then leverage their kind of sales engine and everything else. On the corporate side, it varies wildly, I would say. Generally, it's about being in touch with the more innovative end of what's going on in their industry and having a bit of a kind of listening ear out there, potentially having a route to bringing some of that innovation in. Corporate innovation is a very difficult and wide-ranging topic and engaging with startups is just part of that. Maybe starting with the startup perspective, how, I guess the choice is the access to, to the market that you might get from collaborating with a corporate or kind of doing it yourself and trying to go to market directly. Are those the only two choices? I think I think there's you know there's any number of kind of go-to-market mm. strategies. If you want to move quickly, then partnerships, including with corporates, is is a good way to go. But that could also be with you know with charities or with anybody where your potential customers would coalesce. From the uh, large company perspective, how do you avoid the what's sometimes called not invented here syndromes? Seeing something outside which you haven't created yourself, you might reject it because it's not your own kind of thing. The people that do that only put one toe into the water and then they, they see all of the things and then the things get spat out by the kind of corporate organism sometimes there's a bit more engagement in that and they end up wasting startups time sometimes it you can just feel it not working politically within the organization but i would kind of suggest that most of the companies that are looking to work with startups enter it with an idea of their agenda if something like that kind of not invented here existed they would need to root that out before they did that so can you give an example of a corporate startup collaboration that you think has worked particularly well or where there's been a really good kind of partnership? Yeah, a difficult one. Oh, well, and I'm then going to come and ask you for an example of one that hasn't worked. Hasn't so worked if you want to start it, yeah. with that, you can do. I mean, you know, speaking from, from personal experience, we, we used to run a lot of hackathon type events. Hmm. And just as a kind of example of the type of 
think that occurs. Uh, the event was for a, a very well-known brand. We were bringing in a number of professionals, including startups, and we had full experience in running this type of event. But the corporate brought in their own facilitator because that was the trusted facilitator. And during the first break, the facilitator came to ask how he should be working with these people better. Um, and that's just a, a, an example of a little bit of a fail. There was a lack of trust in us as the kind of startup partner to deliver the whole thing. They wanted to feel secure in a, a tried and tested kind of behavior uh, or, or person. And that person just didn't have the same experience that we had of working with that range of people. Um, and I would say they probably got half as much out of that event as they should have done. So what um, do you think you knew or what experience or skills did you guys have that this corporate appointed facilitator didn't have yeah so i think we were just a lot more used to the kind of spontaneity that you need at a hackathon event um, and the facilitator was used to running quite a scheduled workshop if something changes during that process and you need to react to it very quickly we were used to doing that um, whereas the facilitator was like and the next thing we have to do it on the list is this it just doesn't lend itself to that type of innovative process in that case the kind of your agility and the kind of startup's agility was perhaps lacking in the corporate and the corporate's facilitator. So that's that's one of the differences between corporate startup. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. It boils back down to attitude to risk. Um, corporates have a an attitude to risk which they want to lock it down as much as they can. So if they have used this person on eight previous events and those eight events have delivered what they wanted to deliver, they think they're hedging their risk on using that person to do that. Whereas us as kind of startups, I mean, we've had all sorts of disasters happen at events where you just have to kind of adapt very quickly. Change equals risk and corporates don't like risk. So, you know, if you suddenly want to change the agenda that you've agreed with the corporate over a two month planning process on the day, they don't react to that very well. On the flip side, yep. another event we had run, which was kind of like a, uh, a fintech event, very similar kind of thing, less prescribed set of people, received very well. The European CEO judged the um, the competition on the Sunday afternoon, which is a massive marker of intent um, from the trust in the process and, and the value of the event to the company. And after him attending that event, he then instructed his team to spend a not insignificant seven-figure sum on building an innovation centre for them in London as a result of what he was able to witness at that event. There's obviously been huge investment, and especially around this part of London, in some of those corporate innovation centres, some of them trying to attract startups to incubate their companies for a period of time, others for staff and employees of those companies to develop and incubate ideas, but perhaps in a more creative environment away from the kind of corporate headquarters, for instance. Mm. Yeah, what's your take on some of those? I think where I first met you, actually, was at the um, Telefonica Wira Accelerator, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. so we, we were involved quite heavily in the early days of, of Wira. So, I mean, that's of... just one example, but there are there are plenty of others. But do those kind of initiatives, do they work effectively, or are, are they why are they necessary, I guess, in the first place? They're necessary on a number of different levels. My view on their primary function is actually as a method of culture change in the large organisation. If you look at the way they're structured, if you look at the early days of them, it's different to kind of how they progress, they kind of evolve. And they're actually more often than not given more ability to be autonomous and um, they're given more uh, more resources. And that's because the culture of the company is, is moving towards more of an innovative culture and they, they're understanding that those risk profiles that they normally look at have to change in order to 
do innovation successfully. As much as there might be tangible startup partnerships and you know idea generation and kind of IP going back into the main business, I think a lot of the learnings that they get from it is actually teaching quite a high level in the in the organisation what innovation at a kind of on a startup level looks like compared to R and D or, or whatever they would normally do in terms of, of their products. Sort of build on that is I've seen a lot of large companies invest in some of this stuff primarily I think as a way to attract and retain talent and that might not be the kind of stated aim on the first slide of the PowerPoint but it's if you want to attract the you know the best people or, or retain them within your organisation then you need to find interesting creative entrepreneurial things for them to be getting involved with so yeah to what extent are the employees the kind of driver do you think of the shift towards innovation and corporate startup collaboration in particular. I think particularly in the um, advisory and consultancy section, they had a problem with the retention because people were leaving to go and do more innovative things. So in knowledge-based businesses where there's not much startup capital required. Exactly, yeah. Um, So I think they've built out bigger capabilities more specifically for staff retention. I think it's never a stated desirable because it's very hard to build a business case around unless you've got the proof. If you build a business case around a startup incubator or accelerator and we might get these massive outsized returns from investing in the companies and yada 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 it's a pounds and pence return on investment business case that you can sell into a board that is maybe not so on board with innovation yet a few years down the line if you can then say and because we've cycled our staff through the, uh, the the accelerator to work with the startups, they're much more engaged in what we're doing. They can see that we're innovative. Actually, our retention has gone down. So here's a further reason that we should continue the accelerator program, despite perhaps not hitting any outsized returns on the investment yet. Hmm. So you can you can use one element, which is kind of a pretty obvious investment strategy element to build a business case knowing that there are other benefits but you can't quantify those yet so you use one lever to kind of bring it in um, with a view to all of the other benefits that you know kind of exist so it requires quite brave leadership to sort of make make that case if you can't sort of tangibly point to the all of the benefits yeah i mean it it depends it depends how much the, the the senior management of the company are willing to take a gamble on innovation you know innovation is a is a kind of long-term strategy you can't say we're going to run an accelerator for a year and if we create a google then brilliant um if not we'll shut it down you know it, it has to be an ongoing sustained program that evolves and gets better um because you know the the team will need to learn the startups will need to learn the programs will change they'll develop more uh, startup friendly legal documentation the procurement department will come with them the legal department should come with them and if all of those things happen you will get a kind of compounded um, benefit from running that accelerator if you do it for a year 18 months and you turn it off because you don't see the pounds in the bank account you, you kind of weren't doing it for the right reasons in the first place mm. um, even though you might have needed to use that type of reasoning to, to get it over the line with some people that maybe didn't have as much faith in it and what about from the kind of startup perspective? What what would be your advice to a friend or someone turning up at one of your events who's thinking about going it alone, going to market on their own versus partnering with a, a Google or a Telefonica or whoever it might be, taking that kind of being acquired by or partnering with one of these kind of bigger firms? So I think you, you need to look at what your reason for partnering might be. Um, what the benefits are, you know, what those potential partners' history on working with startups are, what type of process it might be. You know, is it going to take them two weeks to sign off a proof of concept, or is it going to take them two months or two years? Um, you know, I've heard of a uh, 
uh, one startup doing work with a very large organisation took them four years to get the trial going. But how do you know that in advance? I also um, know a company who eventually did a deal with a French company after 48 trips to Paris from London, wow. which is, you know, I don't know what the Eurostar cost, but, you know, just do the maths. That's, yeah, yeah. that's an expensive set. And none of those trips were paid for until the paperwork was signed. So, wow, wow, that's um, perseverance. <laughs> how, how can you know that in advance so i think you can do uh, you can do your research um you can you can ask the organization specifically if there are any other startups they've worked with that you could use as a, as a kind of reference um you can ask them whether you're if they're going to put you through their regular legal and procurement process you can ask how long that normally takes i mean we, we frequently get told that it, you know there's a three-month onboarding vendor process for, for some of the companies we work with that's a little bit unreasonable but if they haven't got any provision to work with startups that moves quicker than that then you've got a very visible kind of, well, this, it's going to take us this long. And that probably involves lots of forms and, and uh, kind of regulatory stuff to kind of go through. We and had and a, what if, what if the, the, the standard contract that you get has, again, I got one the other day, that it was like a 70-page contract with very onerous kind of terms and conditions in it. I know you have a kind of legal background, so mm. you're familiar with some of that stuff. But that's slightly terrifying as a small company to kind of see that. And how do you even begin to push back, or should you? Yeah, no, absolutely you should. And I think I think that's one kind of things that startups should take away is that you can push back just because they are X hundreds of thousands of times larger than you. It doesn't mean that you can't have a meaningful discussion over you know what those clauses in contracts mean. I mean, my, my favourite one is a termination for convenience clause. If you sign a 12-month contract with somebody, it should be a 12-month contract, not a 12-month contract that they can cancel on 10 days' notice at any time for no reason, which is a clause that I saw in a contract. And, and we went back to them and we said, look, if you do this, you are inhibiting our ability to raise money. If all of our 12-month contracts have got a 10-day get-out clause then we can't raise on that. We, you know, we can't grow as a business. So if you want to partner with us in a meaningful way, you need to find a way to change that clause. And it's actually just about asking and opening that conversation. And if they have a completely inflexible legal team and they will not move, then you need to make a decision as to whether you want to work with them. Mm. You, know, you might make the decision that on this occasion, yes, we're going to do it, but we cannot do it for any other partners. Like This has to be a thing that we state up front because we can't have a portfolio of contracts that we can can be cancelled on 10 days for no reason. And what about the role of kind of brokers or intermediaries in this kind of space? So uh, I co-founded one and ran one for the last 10 years, 100% open. And when we started 10 years ago, there was very few people doing that brokering between corporates and startups mm. now 10 years later the, i just i've lost track of how many people are kind of doing this stuff what's your experience of that kind of intermediary space the need for it and who does it well yeah um i think i think there is a need for it i think it's um it's a good kind of shortcut um i kind of describe them as a, as a mezzanine layer um so if the broker can have all the legal contracts with the large organization and then you have a legal contract with the broker you it's very much easier to get those legal structures in place with the broker than it is the large organization so you cut out you know probably 80% of back and forth on paperwork sometimes the broker might even be in a position to pay you on standard terms where the corporate pays them on 90 days or whatever um, so there might even be a kind of uh, a better cash flow element for the for the startup in it so there's there's lots of good reasons to do that the main reason for me as as a kind of business person is access 
Um, if they have access to the right people, to the decision makers, then you're going to spend an inordinate amount of time less getting that contract over the line. There needs to be a clear path as to how you move to having the direct relationship. If you're only working with brokers throughout your entire business, you're going to lose anywhere between 10 and 50% of your revenue to that mezzanine layer. Um, it's convenient. It's a good way to start off. Um, but I think you need to be thinking the sort of longer game as well. Mm. And just whilst we're on that topic, so a few years ago you set up Touch Paper, where at the launch I think I saw pretty much everybody who's anybody in kind of London innovation ecosystem at that event um, two or three years ago. Can you tell us a bit more about Touch Paper and uh, what it is and, and what it does? Touch Paper was my kind of response to working as a startup with a lot of corporates, seeing um, what went wrong, what went right, what people were doing to work around systems as opposed to with systems because the systems were kind of preventing them from doing what they wanted to do. So um, I spent kind of two years on and off speaking to anybody I could in corporates, in startups that had kind of worked with each other and formulating a kind of set of guidelines around what the common pitfalls are, how those pitfalls can be avoided, what in my opinion is the best kind of structure. And it was um, supported by lots of people that had kind of skin in the game really so uh, google for entrepreneurs were a, were a supporter um nesta bristow's a law firm um, and, and, and lots of others and they all really wanted to help uh, improve that situation because they had customers clients startups that were struggling with that issue um so uh, as you say the, the launch went fantastically well um, and i hope that the uh, the toolkit which was kind of posted free online um has helped a number of people um i know for a fact that um one large corporate actually used it as a blueprint to set up their accelerator um, and that actually worked really quite well. Oh, brilliant. Um, so it's, yeah, it's had some good results. So uh, one kind of stakeholder that we haven't talked about yet in this whole space is, I guess, the role of kind of governments or kind of public sector. I don't know if you've seen the work of the economist Mariana Matsukatu, which is uh, really interesting if you haven't, but she she talks about the role that government plays in funding, especially in like Silicon Valley the, the, there's a seminal paper that breaks down all the key patents in the iPhone and they're basically all funded by kind of government research or Tesla as well has been massively grown through government research contracts before it then gets commercialised by Apple or Tesla in those two examples. What role could and should government play potentially in this world of corporate startup collaboration? I'd like to see them play a bit more of a stronger role. It's a hard area to operate in. The best thing they could do is bring in more legislation or more effective legislation around payment terms. It's just not beneficial for a corporate startup to relationship to work on long payment terms, so 90 or even 120 days. It doesn't help the corporate because they're putting that startup at risk. And obviously it doesn't help the startup because they're doing a whole bunch of work without being paid for it. Even that one tiny thing, um, I think the government could really help that. But I'm sure there's mm. European legislation, which is, I think it's called the Late Payment Directive. It's quite a bold or provocative move, or certainly not one that I've ever had the courage to try and enforce, even though the legislation exists. No, what, what, no. what are your thoughts on that? So uh, there was a guy in um, in Ireland, I think, um, that said, I am, I am sick of late payment. So I am going to use that directive and I'm going to bill every single one of my late paying clients. I'm going to take them all to court and then I'm going to shut my business down because I won't have any customers left. Trouble it, it causes to use that legislation, it's just, it's just, not, it's just not worth it. And, it and it creates a bad relationship. So it doesn't sound like the legislation is the problem, it's the sort of enforcing of it that's the issue. I mean, it's really for 
the corporate to step up and say, we acknowledge this legislation and this is what we're going to do about it. Um, but I think that would really, really help a lot of a lot of smaller companies. And that's it actually goes for a lot of smaller companies um, because payment terms with, with large organisations are um, you know, a bugbear for a lot of companies. Yeah. Do you think corporates and startups looking forward are going to sort of need each other more than ever? Or what? how do you see the kind of... The relationship between these kind of two two worlds um, evolving in the in the coming twelve months. There are different corporates on different journeys. So th- those that have been doing it for a while um, have got a more evolved kind of process. Um, they kind of know what they want, so they're being a bit more targeted on who they look for. Um, and those are the are the ones that are probably going to yield a bit more success. Um, so in touch paper, the first thing we talk about is strategy. You know, why do you want to work with startups and startups? Why do you want to work with corporates? If you fix that at the very beginning, it helps you target everything else. Um, but that takes a little while to learn, you know, because you might be set a number of startups to meet as a kind of corporate in, you know, innovation engagement person. Um, so you're just, you're, you're shooting for that number. It doesn't matter who they are. Let's see what they're doing. Let's find out. And you gradually kind of whittle it down as to, right, well, that wasn't a useful meeting. This one was. What was the characteristics of this one, et cetera, et cetera. So then people that are only just starting that journey um, and they need to learn all of that. I think they can read it. But there's nothing better than something you, you learn yourself in order to actually make a change. Um, so I think there's, there's different people at, at, at different levels, and I, I hope it will continue to get better. I also think that there are a number of startups that are rejecting corporates as well, um, particularly maybe fintechs, um, where they're just disrupting that industry um, in a way that the, the incumbents are very much feeling something that they need to do about it. Um, and the typical question is build or buy. Um, and if they want to buy, they are either going to have to pay an inordinate amount of money, um, which probably makes it not worth it, or not do anything about it. Um, so I, I think a lot of them are turning to building their own solutions. So in terms of some of the pitfalls, you've already talked about some of those from a startup perspective, but I just wonder if there are any kind of pitfalls from a corporate perspective that you can talk about that they need to be wary of. Yeah, I mean, other than the main one of of know what you're looking for and what you're trying to achieve. I see a lot of trials and proof of concepts happening, um, which are all very well. But then there's like this giant gap between uh, the proof of concept ending and what the next thing might be. Whilst it's hard to put like a full contract in place for if it's successful, then this is what we will do. There has to be a discussion at the time of setting the trial and the proof of concept about what will it take if this is successful for us then to roll out a full contract with you? There are a number of corporates doing really good proof of concept, um, light terms and conditions, light legal paperwork, super effective, but then have a six-month onboarding for a full contract. You know, and if, if your trial is only three months long, <laughs> then you know, you're, in, you're in a bit of trouble. So maybe from the startup perspective and from the corporate perspective, if this is something that you, want, you could potentially want to continue, then you have to be thinking about what's after the trial. Yeah, my former business partner used to say, start at the end, so know where you want to get to and kind of work backwards from there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And then um, one thing I see time and time again is not enough resources being afforded to innovation uh, teams. So uh, this is generally where those teams have other responsibilities. Um, They may be doing the innovation thing because it's a personal um, agenda or, or something that they're interested in um, and they're allowed to do it they're given the permission but they're not given any change in their day-to-day roles in order to facilitate um, innovation um, and I not only see this in engagements with startups you know um, we work with some people where they're using a new um, a new piece of software and it's company-wide but they're not then given the the time 
to invest in in allowing the organization to get used to that piece of software before it's then kind of rolled up and thrown in the bin because the six-month trial they did with that piece of software didn't work. Um, so, yeah, people have to think about things not only in pounds and pence investment, but the resources in terms of time that they give to people to allow things to kind of bed in and, and work. And I guess just linked to that, something I see all over the place is just knowing where to focus. So especially from a corporate perspective, you might have dozens or even hundreds or thousands of kind of startups you might collaborate with. So, um, and you don't necessarily know in advance which are going to be the most fruitful kind of relationship. So how do you know um, where to focus your, your time, but also your, your resources? Do you have any thoughts on that? As a, as a corporate, I think you have to be clear on what you're trying to achieve. And that should guide which startups you you start with. If you're if you're generally using a kind of scattergun approach and you're you're happy to take that kind of strategy, then you also have to accept that there will be a lot of failure in in how you how you work with startups. Um, but it, it really goes back to that core pillar of having a strategy and knowing what you are looking to achieve. Um, and that goes for the structure of it and as well as the business benefits. So, are you looking to acquire startups? Are you looking just to build? business working relationships with startups? Are you looking for a hybrid? Are you running an accelerator? And then over across the top of that, what do you want the outcome to be? Is it uh, that you want new product innovation? Is it that you want new productivity slash back office innovation? And that helps you guide those things. But sometimes people kind of walk into it and saying, we're just gonna do some innovation. Yeah. How does that strategy point that you just made and i think is absolutely right fit with the point you made earlier about the hackathon facilitator that wasn't particularly agile and that the sort of lack of agility that can perhaps exist how do you marry the the need to improvise and be agile when it comes to innovation with the need to be strategic and to plan and methodical with your investment in time and money so are those two things is it possible to kind of bring those th things together yeah, I, I think it is. But you, you have to accept that there will be change to your agenda. There may be change to the structure that you accept. There will be people that are willing to engage with you on their rules only and not yours. You know, as much as there needs to be structure and a, a formula and a direction, you have to be willing to flex within that. Um, if you set up a black and white agenda of how you move through a process and it's a tick box, this is what we do next, this is what we do next, and you don't deviate from it, then you're not going to have an effective innovation program. There's no step-by-step -step formula on how to innovate. Um, there, there's too much nuance to it and too many variables. You need to have an overall guiding path, but you also need to take a few little deviations from that if necessary and be happy to do so. Any other pitfalls on your on the top of your mind whilst you're yeah, talking about that? Per person, personal bugbear, and it, it, it kind of goes back to the black and white thing, really. When you are measuring the success of a program or innovation, um, it's really important to measure uh, important metrics, not metrics that are easy to measure. Um, I mean, pounds and pence return is a classic kind of innovation no-no for me. Like you can measure that over a long, long period of time, perhaps, but you can't. You can't be looking at a, you know, a million-pound investment over twelve months. What has it returned in innovation? Um, it just doesn't. It just doesn't work like that. It's an easy thing to measure, but it's lazy. You need to be looking at the objectives that align with your strategy. So how many startups have we engaged in this particular industry? You know, how many projects, how many POCs have we done? Uh, how many of those were effective? What learnings did we get from those if they weren't effective? Like, you know, how have we evolved our innovation program? They're hard metrics to measure, but you have to come up with a, with a way of doing that that means you can evaluate it in a way that is befitting for innovation rather than the easy things. 
Yeah, I, I was reading something yesterday. What gets mismeasured is mismanaged. So mm -hmm. it's, it's choosing the wrong metrics. Or the example they gave, which is a bit of a strange one, is when Bill Gates walks into a room, the, the average net worth of everyone in that room immediately increases by, you know, tenfold or something uh, just <laughs> because you've got this one outlier which is bill gates and his his net worth so yep. be careful about including you know those outlier data points some people certainly seem to think that there's a, a lack of innovation especially in the kind of digital technology market partly because of the dominance of some very big well-resourced kind of players who are buying up all the talent buying up all the startups and it doesn't allow the next generation of companies to kind of come through do you have a view or a point of view on the very powerful role that some of the especially the big kind of tech firms play and whether they should be broken up as some people are arguing i think I think if you look at traditional competition law and what mergers get blocked, I think it's fairly inevitable that there will be some breakup in the future at some point. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily healthy for a company to have such an impact across the world. Is that a good thing? I think to a degree. I think there's a lot of research and a lot of really boundary-pushing innovation that happens in those large companies and if you split them up too much they're not going to be able to to achieve that so i think it needs what, to invest be, in long-term research yeah yeah i think so because um yeah because they'll be focused more on the however they've been kind of split up so i think it needs to be done thoughtfully uh, but i i see it as inevitable from a certainly from a financial and an impact perspective and i guess linked to that a few years ago a lot of the chat, certainly in the UK, was that the UK doesn't produce kind of these unicorn billion dollar companies in the way that come out of the United States, certainly. But there's also pushback against that unicorn chasing. I don't know if you've seen the Zebras Unite mm -hmm. um, thing, which is looking for more sustainable levels of growth. Where, where, where do you stand in terms of kind of growth as a thing that startups or corporates should be aspiring towards delivering I personally am not a big fan of working inside a company that has that kind of rocket ship growth. Like that's just my my personal preference. Um, I think it is an extremely rare skill to be able to manage onboarding, you know, fifty people a week. Um, so my my personal preference is more sustainable businesses. Um, in terms of European, you know, multi multi billion dollar uh, startups. I, I do think there's a there's a risk difference between Europe and the US. I think there's a, there's a very different cultural approach to those types of things. Of course, there are people um, in Europe that could potentially build a Google or an Amazon, but I think there are more people that have grown up in a culture where that is possible in, in the States. Um, and likewise, there are people that want to build sustainable businesses in the States, but I think there are more people in, in Europe that do that. More often than not, there's a good reason that, that companies do well, because they're providing um, a service that people want or a product that people want um, and uh, yeah as you say environmentally provided that product is um, is responsible um, then why should companies not grow thank you joe i really like joe's pragmatic optimism and deep insights into how the worlds of corporates and startups collide and for me this conversation reminded me of both the art and the science of open innovation there are a few links in the show notes that go with the episode if you want to find out more about joe and i really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and will return again very soon before we go please can i ask that you rate comment and subscribe to this podcast and perhaps share it with others who you think might like it as well using the hashtag on the edge
This will encourage us to keep on making new connections and find more interesting people to talk to and to share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that focuses on addressing the complex and collaborative challenges of our increasingly connected world. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.